we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. We want them talking trash to Goliath. We want them building a boat and collecting animals. Everybody thinks they're crazy, and they are. I'm your huckleberry. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Behold, a pale horse. The man who sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. Can you read, my son? Well, that depends. Can you go fight in the shade? Repent or perish. You know your places. God be with you all. All for all and one for one, then, I guess. Stone Mountain Media. Ail to the King. Welcome back to another episode of Stone Mountain Media. I am Dave here solo tonight, not with Sean, but joined by a special guest, Non Tenant. Non, how are you doing? I'm doing better than I deserve. Amen. Uh, on the name, where does that come from? It is an old online nickname, which got stuck because lots of the people that I met online then met me in real life. Okay. Uh, and introduce yourself however you'd like to, to listeners. Well, I am the director of its, <laughs> the creative director of It's Good to Be a Man, holding on on Michael's job. So It's Good to Be a Man is a ministry that Michael Foster and I run. And that's probably what I'm primarily known for. I do have a blog of my own, but that's been a very much a side project for quite a while. I work as a freelance web designer and copywriter, and I've written a few books and I'm working on a few others. So your websites look really good because that's what you do professionally. That is correct. Now, I'm talking to you and behind you uh, is, is a bow and arrow setup, uh, a hatchet, and some other things. I guess you're allowed rifles, but not handguns in New Zealand. Well, the rifle that you see there is actually an air gun. We're okay. allowed hunting rifles, but we aren't allowed semi-autos anymore. And we aren't allowed handguns, except in very stringent conditions. You're allowed to have a handgun if you practice at least once every two weeks at a designated range. Nice. So they can surveil you? I, I'm not sure. I haven't bothered to go to that kind of effort because there's no range nearby. Gotcha. But I am looking to get a, a carbine and a shotgun this year. Okay. That's something on my list. The, uh, the, the bow and arrow setup. I, I was in Scotland for a bit and I wasn't allowed a firearm. And there were a lot of restrictions on knives. Mm. Uh, but I could open carry a bow and quiver full of arrows if I wanted. What, like uh, around town? Yeah, just on the street. I was in, I, I was in Edinburgh, <clears throat> you know. No reason to carry a bow and arrow. No, but, that's uh, extremely strange. I was told that I, I, I haven't could. tried doing that. And I guess if you did that in New Zealand, people would just look at you funny and think you're a bit weird. I yeah. don't know if anyone would be particularly upset about it, but. But yeah, maybe that's a creative, uh, a creative idea for you to try out. <laughs> okay. I got, I got a bunch of questions for you, not in any particular order. Sure thing. Uh, and very excited for your answers uh, and answer them as long and specifically as you, as you desire. Um, so I saw that back in the day, you were an atheist, very unoriginal of you, an mm. atheistic Kiwi, pretty mm. boring. Um, tell me about your atheism. What was that like? 
Well, I was raised Roman Catholic and I became an atheist in high school, primarily because a lot of the friends that I knew being in a kind of geeky subculture, most of those kinds of people tend to be atheists and kind of became a new atheist before new atheism was really a thing. But if, if it had been five or 10 years later, you know, I'd have been reading Dawkins and I'd have been reading Sam Harris and all of these big loser names. And so for several years, I was very active on internet forums. I'd go and I would harass Christians and I would primarily focus on the free will argument uh, because that's where Christians tend to be really weak. And a lot of them think that the Bible says things about free will that it doesn't. And it took me a very long time to meet someone who actually corrected me. And uh, who, who is this individual that corrected you? That was my now wife. Yeah, tell me about that. That's, that's a gold story. <laughs> so we had a sword fighting club. Uh, I used to do a lot of Western martial arts. People have been working relatively recently, so since about 2000, on recovering the Western tradition of martial arts based on fight books that have been recovered uh, only very recently and translated from you know German um, primarily. And so I was really into that German and Italian and we, because we had this club and it was at a university, um, my now wife, Sarah, she went to that university. She was really into Lord of the Rings and that kind of stuff. And so she saw people with playing with sword like objects and she thought that she might want to join in. So there's a certain amount of irony here because of course these days I'd be a little bit concerned about a woman doing such things. But at the time that was not even on my radar. And so we met at that. We didn't like it. We became instant enemies. You know, we did not like each other. Um, there was this annoying girl who couldn't fight, who wanted to be part of the group. And she was a Christian. And <laughs> so we had a number of uh, discussions, but she was a very quiet girl. And often after club, we would go back to a flat and we would have dinner. We'd, you know, pick up takeout on the way and we'd all sit around and talk and she'd mostly just sit there quietly, but occasionally the conversation would steer toward religion and bashing Christianity. And one night she spoke up and just kind of quietly corrected something that I had said. And do you remember what that was? I don't, but I, it was around the idea of how Christianity is so stupid because it thinks that God can um, both know what you're going to do freely and still have you do it freely. And she was like, but the Bible doesn't say that. And I was like, what? Because, you know, I never, never bothered going to the source material. <laughs> That'd of be course. crazy. And so we had this little impromptu debate and I came away from it feeling like I had for the first time not actually done very well in a debate against a Christian. And so I emailed her and I was like, what, is, what are you talking about? These doctrines of grace and this tulip nonsense. I've never heard of this before. What is all this? And so she pointed me to scripture where it outlines these doctrines. And I started to study the actual Bible. And as we discussed scripture and the Bible and so on, I, I became uh, in com combination with the transcendental argument for the existence of God, which I providentially came across at the same time. Yeah. Started, how did that happen? Because well, I've I was been just, a Christian a long time, and it was a long time before I came across that argument. Well, it was probably just providence that it became a kind of center of controversy around the same time that I was thinking through these issues. What year was and that? Would have been 2003, I think, 2003 okay. or four. And around that time, on the forums that I was on, 
okay. people started to talk about this stupid new argument that could just prove anything. What, and, uh, what do you, do you remember what kicked that off for your circles? Mm, I don't, I think it came from the infidels. What do they call it? Infidels online. Or there was some kind of, um, forum that was primarily dedicated to atheism and so on which i wasn't actually part of but the dedicated christians would go there to argue with these guys and that was where it kind of stood up because there were some barnsonites who went along and tried to use some presuppositional apologetics there and so i basically came across it and i was like what is this garbage and was very intrigued by it because i could I could see all of these atheists bashing it and all these atheists pointing out flaws in the logic and how you could use it to prove anything. I was like, I don't think they're understanding this argument quite right. And I don't think they're being intellectually honest. And that's one thing that I've always tried to be is intellectually honest. I mean, an intellectually honest atheist is a contradiction in terms, but I was a little bit upset by the fact that they weren't doing better at dealing with this argument. I thought, you know, if atheism really has what it takes, you ought to be able to defeat the argument on its merits rather than yep. having to straw man it. Yep. And so I, it just went around in my head a lot. And I started to become convinced that even though I didn't believe, I didn't think the argument proved what it claimed to prove, but I did it. What it did is it showed me that if you accepted Christian presuppositions, then a lot fell into place that was extremely important. Things like morality and um, the ability to know anything epistemology. And if you presupposed atheism, putting those things in place was extremely difficult. Like I had no idea how to get there. So it was just kind of an extra, an extra knife in the side to convince me that Christianity was true. But ultimately it was, you know, the Holy spirit working to convict me of my sin and of the truth of his word. That was what really did it, but he uses a lot of different means. And that was one of the primary means that, and just discussing his word with someone who knew something about it. Uh, and so how long, um, so you start doing these Bible studies with this girl, this sword wielding girl, and then you marry her and <laughs> well, how, how much time like passed? Yeah. About two years. Okay. Uh, so you studied the Bible twice through with this girl and then you said, you know what? I, I might as well marry this girl. Well, it was, it kind of went from talking to her about it to going along to a Bible study. Uh, in a city fairly close by um, and then going along to church and just because of the fact that I had come to faith through her and we talked about these things a lot um, we developed a very close relationship and that naturally led to you know going to movies together because that's what's, something we both enjoyed we had a lot of other things in common we had a lot of interests in common and so it naturally developed into a relationship and it made sense to ask her to marry me and uh I know recently you had a church change. Mm -hmm. um, That's one Yeah, well, I, we'll get there. Uh, what what kind of church did you end up in? Well, she would. She was at uh, Trinity Reformed Baptist Church, which is where I was until quite recently. Okay. Her father was the pastor there before the pastor who's currently there. Well, that, that's good. There was a. It's good there was a pastoral change before recent events. That would have made Thanksgiving. Well, I guess you don't have Thanksgiving. That would have made Christmas dinners a little bit awkward. It would have been very awkward. Um. Okay, I'll hold off on the Trinity Reform question specifically. Give me an understanding of what the church scene is like in New Zealand. It is like a spiritual wasteland. If you played Fallout Three. 
that's kind of how it is. If you think about the, the cities <laughs> in Fallout 3 and how they're, you know, they're, they're sort of built out of corrugated iron and they're not really cities and they've got weird names and the people in them are a bit odd. That's kind of how the churches in New Zealand are. We're currently at a very faithful little church in Hamilton, which is about 20 minutes from where I live. And they are very... Um, very fundamentalist, very dispensational. So that's quite trying, yep. Yep. but they love the Bible and they love the Lord, which yep. is more than can be said, unfortunately for most churches in New Zealand. Yeah. I've got a friend in Aberdeen, Scotland, who goes to um, one variety of brethren church, uh, you know, dispensational pre-mill fundamentalist, but like you said, they love the Lord. They love his word. They're seeking to follow it. And so, as the people he links up with mm. for such a time as this. That's right. Um, so end to end, if I drive from one point to, to, to the other point in New Zealand, how long does that take me? Depends if your car can float or not. So New Zealand's two islands. Okay. And the very northern part of New Zealand is a bit of a mess of islands as well. But it, let me think, I don't know how long it would take you through the South Island. I haven't really, I haven't been to the South Island except once and i haven't been around it new zealand the north island would probably take you 10 hours i guess to drive from the very tip to the very end and then you can take a ferry to the south island and the south island is a bit longer but i don't really know what the roads are like there depends how windy they are because new zealand's quite volcanic yeah and so a lot of the roads are quite poor and a lot of the roads are very windy as opposed to just you know straight like wide highways like you'd expect to find in america sure those are kind of coming in now i actually don't really like them because they're so boring to drive but yeah it's starting but, to make you more know, of a it, it takes you 20 minutes to get to your church your how long did it take to get to your previous church uh, about half an hour so is that going to be pretty normal if, if i live in any given place on your island i can find a good a good enough church within a half an hour? Ooh, I wouldn't say so. No. Uh, okay. If you were in, if you were in the, the Southern part of the South Island, I suspect that you would be quite hard pressed to find a church. Uh, I know a couple of families who live in Tikawiti, which is about 40 minutes South of me. And I believe they both come into Hamilton to worship. So that's about an hour for them. Okay. Uh, Anglicanism in New Zealand is uh, pretty much like Anglicanism in America, Episcopalianism. Okay. It's from what I know, I, I'm not actually that uh, fluent in all of the various um, denominations in New Zealand and what they're like. Okay. Because I've primarily just been in the one church for most of my Christian life. So I haven't had that much opportunity to kind of look around and see what's going on. But from what I've seen, the Anglicans... Uh, there are some very good kind of almost independent Anglican churches, but the majority of them are just like, um, you know, the standard mainline liberal kind of stuff that you'd expect to find in America as well. The strongest faithful denomination is Presbyterianism or Reformed Baptist, or what would you say? I would say independent. Uh, independent okay. fundamentalists are probably the strongest. Okay. Uh, there are there's one Presbyterian denomination that I know of that has, I think it's only four or five churches. Um, Reformed Baptists, I would say, is rotten to the core, the whole uh, fellowship. We have a bunch of churches. I say we because I am a Reformed Baptist, but the, the fellowship is a, just a mess. I wouldn't, wouldn't go to any of their churches. Why is that? 
Um, primarily because they're compromised on some of the fundamental issues that we're facing in the broader evangelical world. So they're just kind of squishy evangelicals like everyone else. That is, that is not the ethos Reformed Baptists have in America. Um, certainly they've got a vibe of starchiness and, um, yeah, maybe some like, if you think of Arbka, starchy, uh, not really involved. I would say that's the view of them, but definitely not squishy. So why, why are they squishy where you are? Possibly just because of the way that New Zealand is compared to America. It's, um, there isn't as much room carved out still for people to believe crazy things like in the headship of fathers in both society and the church and the family. Um, partly, I think it's a matter of poor teaching and especially poor leadership. Um, the, the kind of men that seem to have gotten into leadership in the Reformed Baptist churches are typically the kind of people pleasers than things like discipline and understanding the importance of God's law and how to apply justice and so on. So for instance, when I was, uh, when I went through church discipline at Trinity reformed, I, well, you're a heathen. You got excommunicated. Went through a process. I got excommunicated. Yeah. yeah you're so a I was excommunicated because I teach, um, basically I detract from the gospel and I'm divisive and you know, all these things. So the process that they went through though, was one which was overtly unbiblical and no one else in the fellowship of reformed baptist churches none of the other pastors contacted me directly which when i thought through it like that at the time it didn't really occur to me that that would be a problem it didn't occur to me that they would do that but looking back on it and thinking through if i were a pastor in a fellowship of churches not a it's not a presbytery um but it is a fellowship if I were a pastor in that fellowship and I saw what was going on, and I don't think that any of them were unaware, I would want to look at both sides of the story. And when I saw everything that had been written by the guy and the kinds of claims he was making, I would want to know very, I would want to examine very closely whether those claims were true, because if they're true, that's a real issue that would yeah. have to be addressed in the fellowship. And it would be a major, like churches would be getting kicked out and it would be a huge problem. And, nothing like that happened. So it's very political. Um, I'd say that they're political rather than pastoral. Okay. Uh, I, I got, I have more questions about the reality on the ground in New Zealand, but before I get there, I think it'll make more sense for people. If we talk some about your work with, it's good to be a man. You, you mm. end up at a reformed Baptist church, uh, a thinking Christian, you and then time passes and somehow you start it's good to be a man with michael foster how did that come about yeah so i've always been a bit of a weirdo and i mean that in the best possible way uh, someone who tends to look for patterns that other people don't and tends to question things that other people don't and that obviously can have good sides and bad sides so it, it needs to be tempered and wasn't traditionally tempered in my life because I lacked for good spiritual fathership. And that has 
by God's grace, it has kept, I've stayed on the straight and narrow, but it's, it's been the kind of thing where you can easily fall into a ditch because you get obsessed with one idea and you try to follow it down the rabbit hole and you, you go too far. So that's the kind of brain that I have. And I would just kind of um, follow ideas, threads on my blog. That's the main reason that I started it was that I could just write about stuff that interested me, theological stuff. And for a while it focused on things like the atonement and how I think that Charles Hodge got that right rather than the traditional Owenic view. And it would focus can you, on... Can you briefly um, explain that? <laughs> okay, so my position is that maybe it's easier to explain that the Oenic position. So the Oenic position is basically that Jesus paid for specific sins on the cross in a kind of, in a transaction that was like money for money. Okay. So sin is like, is, is treated almost like money. It's like a pecuniary kind of atonement. Um, my view is that Jesus paid the penalty due any man on the cross. Um, not, not like for like what he suffered was actually far greater because he was the son of God. Um, but it was a penal substitution, not a pecuniary substitution, which means that sins are not automatically forgiven on the basis of the cross. Rather, the cross is the grounds on which they may be forgiven, which sounds on many into people. Calvinists get very upset about this and they freak out and they think that I'm a full point Calvinist, but that's uh, not, not actually the case. It's a very standard historical Calvinist view. But that was something that I worked through and wrote a series on, which you can go to my blog at non.com and look, do a search for atonement and you'll find that. So would I be understanding it in rough terms as uh, a well of atonement that by the irresistible grace of the spirit, any man may draw from it and, and have sufficient atonement from that well or that fountain exactly. of blood? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sounds Arminian to me. <laughs> okay yeah, so, so yeah, yeah. i so you spent that brain. a lot of time yeah. writing and okay. investigating things and then i started to get into what's what i call i suppose anyone might call kingdom theology because i started to question and this began to happen when i preached on i was preaching through john at my church got to john 316 and realized i didn't actually have a very clear idea of what it means that God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only begotten son. Um, what, what is the world? And people would typically assume that it just meant all people, which doesn't make sense because God doesn't save all people. So if God loved all people in such a way as to save them, he would save them. And so I, I spent some time in John looking at the, the line of thinking that he goes through and the way that he compares things and contrasts things and other places in his writing that he talks about the world and how there's a ruler of this world and how the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of God and of his anointed in Revelation 11, 15, and came to the fairly obvious conclusion that the world is a kingdom. And then I was like, okay, if the world's a kingdom, whose kingdom is it? How does it start? Who's the ruler of this world? What, what, why does he get kicked out? And I just went down this rabbit hole and eventually wrote a blog series on what is the kingdom of God and where does it start and where does it end? And how does it get traced through scripture? And that turned into a book called The Spine of Scripture, which I'm working on a second edition to. And where can people buy that? On Amazon. You can just do a search for The Spine of Scripture or Non-Tenant and you'll find it. Cool. And during that process, I got into some trouble with my father-in-law, the pastor at the time, because I came to 
certain conclusions about Psalm 82 and who the sons of God are um, and Genesis 6 and who the sons of God are that he didn't really like. Now, is that from, from Heiser? Did you? Yeah. So, okay, as an aside, hmm. here, here's my problem with Heiser. Yeah, go okay? ahead. I don't, I don't really, it's, it's not about the sons of God thing. I take a different interpretation of sons of God than you, but I'm yeah. not worked up about it. I, I run in the kind of circles you do. It's just not that controversial to take the position you have. Sure. My thing with Heiser is on 1 Corinthians 11. <laughs> I didn't know this. <laughs> Someone trying to argue against me on 1 Corinthians 11. Testicles? Yeah, it's about balls. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man. okay, if he's right, <laughs> here's the problem with, with that. I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with balls. My, my problem with Heiser's argument is that Paul would have to be arguing from incorrectness. He would have to be building his argument on a falsehood. So what is your doctrine of scripture? Is, is scripture so fallible that it can, it, it can build cases of ethics from false understandings of reality? Or is it so it's superintended by the Holy Spirit that Paul's not going to be going to be daft and making a daft argument about balls? Heiser actually, to his credit, has a higher view of Scripture than people think he does. He's you can understand why I would have a problem with his view of Scripture, though. Yeah, absolutely. He, I think, has a similar kind of mind to me in some ways, in that he's willing to go weird places that other people just kind of freak out about. Yeah, and he's willing to say, "What if this were true? How could it? How could we fit it in? Um, okay. What what would what would it mean? And what would we have to rework? And what are the implications?" And I think he's probably wrong about parabolaion and what it means. But I I think his general approach to scripture is actually reasonably sound. In that, what he's doing is he's saying, when God superintended the authorship of scripture. He didn't fill each person's head who wrote scripture. He didn't fill each of their heads with every single true proposition that scripture is based on. Rather, he took what was in their heads and he used it like a tool to get the, like, um, you know, he took crayons to create a picture. It, it's a crude picture because he used crayons, not because of some fault in him. He did the best he could with crayons. He did a perfect crayon drawing. But a crayon drawing is still a crayon drawing compared to, you know, if you took a, a, a fine liner and did like some technical art that would look completely different and a lot more impressive. So his view is basically when the authors of scripture say, talk about the pillars of the earth. Now, I think that the authors of scripture knew that the pillars of the earth, they understood that to be symbolic language. But suppose the author of scripture really did think that the earth was flat and sat on pillars would that be a problem? Like, can God not take what they currently believe and use that to express something true? And that's, that's where he's coming from. And that's actually a very deep and difficult argument to get into. And it's something I've written briefly on, on my blog. I've got a post called inerrancy without the weasels, where I point out that a lot of the, a lot of the way that inerrancy is passed in evangelicalism is actually quite weaselly in that it says scripture is basically, it's basically articulates it as scripture is without error in everything that it, it intends to affirm. And then it just kind of punts, intends to affirm as if it's just obvious, like you're just supposed to know what it intends to affirm, but that's a massive hermeneutical question. What does scripture intend to affirm at times? So does, if say, parabolaion means testicle, does scripture intend to affirm 
that women's hair is the equivalent of the male testicle? And if so, does it intend to affirm it in the way that Her was it Her Heraclitus? Um, uh, no, Hippocrates. Is it the way that Hippocrates understood it? As you know, um, they believed that the hair was actually like a tube that absorbed semen, which is why yeah. women didn't have the same kind of characteristics as men. So obviously that's false. We know that it's false. It's absurdly false. But does scripture intend to convey that if it is indeed using parabolaion in that way? Um, I think that probably the, the furthest I would go on that issue with 1 Corinthians 11 is to say that it's certainly possible that Paul intended to be playing on that usage and in doing so convey that there is a sexual component to women's hair, which I think is true. I think that if, sure. you, if you think about how women allure men, the hair is a huge part of that. Yeah. And there's, a, there's a whole theology of glory and cloud and smoke and covering and garments and hair and, and the way that symbolism goes together that I'm still working through. It's surprisingly complex and deep. You would have, you would you agree with me that uh, even if a given author of the scripture had a number of false views about reality, the superintendents of the spirit would keep him from building legal ethical arguments on those false views in writing. Um. I'm, I'm not sure because... It give it would, to me, Non. Give it to me. <laughs> I think it would be very contextual. I, I don't see how you could, for instance, have a false view of justice and somehow get a true moral principle or um, you know, general equity out of that. If you had a false view of justice, it's going to lead to a false general equity and it's going to lead to injustice because that's just... A false view of justice just is injustice. But if you had a false view of some aspect of ontology some aspect of um, the way that things are made or um how things how biology works or something like that uh, you could still uh, often uh, you could still get some truth out of it because very often these false beliefs are actually based in symbolic understandings of the body and so that's actually one of the, the difficulties that we have in assessing a lot of what scripture says is you know, Heiser is a big fan of the idea that ancient peoples believed in a three-tiered universe where Sheol was literally like an underworld and then the earth was a flat surface and then the heavens were above with a firmament that was like a literal solid dome above it. Um, which, if you think through how ancient people thought and what they had to engage with phenomenologically and how weather works and... Um, you know, why do, why do ships disappear over the horizon, that kind of thing, I think is an absurdly unlikely view. I think it's unbelievably improbable that the majority of people in the ancient world actually thought that. Uh, I think that what they're describing is symbolic, but the problem is that it's actually quite rare for human beings to separate symbolic structure from fact. We tend to interpret facts symbolically. Even in the modern day, we do it more than we think. But science has made this something which seems very alien to us whereas other peoples ancient peoples and even other people groups today who aren't um you know kind of indoctrinated or conditioned into a scientific mindset tend to speak in much more symbolic terms and don't necessarily differentiate the phenomenal phenomenology of something and the uh, import of that phenomenology in terms of its symbolic meaning and the um the factual ontology of it as it were if you 
understand what I'm saying. I understand some of what you're saying, but to be honest, not all of it. <laughs> okay. Because uh, so, I'm a trash ba- man. You start yeah, talking about phenomenology. I'm like, what? Phenomenology. Well, phenomenology is just how something appears. So they'll talk about, say, trees, and they will see trees as representing um, the, the connection between heaven and the underworld and how earth connects those two things through a tree. Sweet. And they might talk about that as if it were real. Like the tree literally actually is connecting heaven and earth. But does that mean that they actually think that? Does it, does it mean that that the tree actually reaches into heaven? No, they can see the tree doesn't reach into heaven. And they talk that way a lot. And in scripture, it talks that way a lot. Yeah. Like the mountain of God and so on, the way that God comes down on the mountain and, you know, yeah, he, he does actually come down on the mountain, but does that mean that every time you're worshiping on a mountain, God is literally coming down in fire? No. Um, it's the same with going into the heavenly court when we worship in church. Uh, when we, when we come together and worship, Jesus says we're two or three are gathered in my name. There am I among you. Um, he's not physically among us, but he is among us in some special way. And when we gather together and worship, there is some sense. I think you see this in revelation, the way that John on the Lord's day, he's, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And it's like, he, it's like something's removed from his eyes and he can see where he actually is and he's in heaven. Um, so there's some sense in which we are actually before the throne of God when we worship in the congregation. And this is difficult to pass and hard to understand. And symbology is fascinating and difficult. Yeah. And so from uh, these phenomenological difficulties um, and sons of God getting you in trouble with your father-in-law, you <laughs> right, went that's where, where. We you went where before you got to it's going well, to be a man so what happened was were you always a patriarchalist no or is no, this a no, development not at all okay it was a development i mean i was right. a kind of bare bones complementarian for a long time because that's nice. just you know, what the bible said yeah and i got into trouble because the sons of god thing was kind of the catalyst because he didn't like that particular doctrine but where I really got into trouble was with my new pastor because where I go with the kingdom theology is that it's the gospel of the kingdom. That's literally what it's called repeatedly in the new Testament. Sure. And I wanted to know why is it called the gospel of the kingdom when what we preach in the Western world is actually the gospel of atonement. And in working through that issue, I came to certain conclusions that my antinomian pastor was very unhappy with such as such as that we actually need to obey God's law and obeying God's law is an integral part of exercising faith. So faith is not <laughs> crazy. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. Well, that was basically my position. Oh but, my goodness. Radical. But the way that I expressed it apparently made him very unhappy. And yeah, apparently <laughs> from an early from quite early on, I think almost as soon as he arrived, it it seems he had decided he needed to get rid of me somehow. So that was what I was kind of working up against for two or three years. That's hard. Yeah. And in the process of working through the gospel of the kingdom, one of the questions that came up was how does this relate to gender? Yeah. And a couple of the important questions were, it's the gospel of the kingdom, not the queendom. So, kingship really is important all of the heads are male and it's not just a religious thing it's throughout scripture male headship matters in all kinds of ways 
And another issue was related to the question of sons of God. One of the things that I noticed was in the Old Testament, I think um, I, I would finesse this now a bit more than I did in the book, but what I say in the book is in the Old Testament, sons of God exclusively refers to uh, the rulers in the heavenly places, which I don't think is quite true. I think that there's actually deliberate ambiguity in the Old Testament on who the sons of God are, but it does, it is definitely a term of art for angelic rulers. Whereas in the New Testament, sons of God exclusively refers to Christians who have been raised into the heavenly places. And so that change is really theologically significant because something happens with the cross and with the enthronement of Jesus and with his people being identified as his body, where we are now seated in the heavenly places and we supplant the previous rulers. And that's why there's this battle between the powers and the principalities and the rulers of this world and the church, because we're actually taking over from them and it's something that they don't want, so they're fighting. And that, that was an interesting question because it means that women are also sons of God, which is weird, but covenantally, that's how they're regarded. Yep. And so I had to figure out what does that mean for gender roles and for male headship? And does that, does that upend male headship or does it um, re-express male headship? You know, what's the deal? And I got into reading um, a couple of blogs. I read Del Rock and I read... Uh, the rational male, those are kind of the two main ones that I got really deep into. And it primarily started through John Piper, ironically. I really don't like John Piper, but he, on Desiring God, there was a post about Calvinism and niceness, I think it is. And so I wrote a post about that because I didn't really like the way he handled it because, you know, John Piper is, he has a very effeminate style. He's very emotive and i think that one of the reasons that we are where we are much as he has done a lot of good part of his great weakness is a kind of feminine mindset where he's allowed a lot of things that he ought not have allowed do you think that that um unfortunately makes him uh more of a potent negative to the church in the west Whereas maybe some more obviously bad guys are able to be, uh, uh, you know, avoided, but, oh, you know, it's John Piper, glory of God. And so you end up taking in things you shouldn't take in and almost introduces these negatives further, deeper. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would put it that way, because I think most of what I've read from Piper has been generally helpful. I think his Christian hedonism idea becomes like an overarching lens. Heiser, everything is about sons of God and he turns it into the lens through which he reads everything. And, some, and so sometimes he gets stuff wrong. Piper, Christian hedonism becomes his overarching lens. It's like everyone gets obsessed with one thing and then everything else gets read through that and distorted. Uh, so I, I need to figure out what my one thing is so that that, that doesn't happen. Uh, manhood, manhood and yeah. sexuality. <laughs> Probably, right, yeah. <laughs> But I, I think the way that Piper has damaged the church is more through what he's allowed rather than what he's written. Okay. He's, he's tried to be very ecumenical and he's actually been one of the firmest people um, of the old complementarian God sure. on the issues of male headship and male roles. You know, he's and even being beyond just the church and, and family. Piper is yeah. willing to push he, it out. He's broached the possibility that women shouldn't be police officers, for instance. And, you know, he was incredibly weak on it, but at least he recognized that there was some issue there and got vilified for it. 
<coughs> excuse me. Um, but the the main issue is that the Gospel Coalition is a significant part of his project. Uh, he's a, a driving force behind it and desiring God as well. If you look at desiring God now, a lot of their articles are very kind of woke. And so he's just allowed a lot of stuff, which he wow. ought not to have allowed. Do you know Greg Morse? Yeah. Greg Morse is great. How do, how do they let him write there? I don't know. Maybe it's cause he's black. And if they fire him, it'll look bad. <laughs> cause his voice, you know, he writes stuff that, you know, over in America, right? So Bailey's going to amen and Wilson's going to amen and all. And he's writing it on, Desiring God. It's like the only thing that's going to be published by Desiring God that's useful. Hmm. And it's so different than what's normal. And you think, man, how is this guy getting past the editor? Yeah. And you're Especially right, considering the comments you see on Facebook afterwards. Yeah. Like they post their article and it's mostly negative. It's quite surprising. He, I don't know if he's got some kind of inside track there where he, he knows the right people or maybe he knows something about the right people that makes him scared <laughs> of him. I don't know. But, you know, praise God for him. Yeah, praise God. Very encouraged by him. So you, uh, you, you were in this track and then, okay, being there, moving forward. Went through a bit of a cage stage with the whole red pill patriarchal thing. And around that time was posting a lot of stuff on Facebook that people were quite upset about. Um, stuff that was not necessarily untrue, but quite slanted and negative. And my wife was very worried. She thought I was on a very negative track. And she asked my pastor, Ryan, for help. Ryan was no help at all because uh, he wasn't really a pastor. He was just a preacher. And well, what's the difference? Well, a preacher gets up to grandstand on a Sunday and then, you know, relaxes and chills out with his friends and is the cool guy during the week, but doesn't actually do any pastoral work and doesn't disciple his people. And a pastor is a shepherd who is involved in the lives of his people, even if they don't think he's cool. And even if he doesn't enjoy hanging out with them. So that's the difference. Thank you for articulating that. <clears throat> and around that time, Michael got in touch with me because he saw that I was posting a lot of the same kind of stuff that he was thinking through at that time on masculinity, patriarchalism and that kind of thing. What year is this? Uh, it would have been two years ago now. Okay. I think late November, 2017. Okay. Something like that. And he basically said, Hey, you're, you're the only person I know of who's writing intelligently on this subject. Do you want to help me with this project that I'm starting up called it's good to be a man. And what I realized really quickly is that what he wanted to do was, sort of manifestly positive. It was resolutely positive. So he, he wanted to establish a establish and articulate a positive doctrine of masculinity because what happens in the red pill world is basically that lots of smart people get together to bitch and complain about all the problems in the world and how terrible it is to be a man and how women suck. And they articulate the problems often with great insight but there's never any kind of solution offered. There's never anything positive to come out of it. It's all just negative Nancy moaning. So it's a lack of fatherhood. Yeah, very much so. So I was like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. I think I would like to be involved with that. And that's essentially what we did. We started to put together articles. We discovered that we worked very well together. Uh, I 
I'm really good at taking what someone else writes and kind of drilling down into it, seeing what they are getting at, what they want to say and reworking it to sound way better and be much clearer. So that's kind of my, my special skill. And it worked really well with Michael because he's got dyslexia and doesn't write as well as I do. So he would put together a lot of stuff and I would just kind of finesse it to make it better, optimize it, one might say. So we, we produced a lot of content and the website got, I created the website and we started a Twitter account and it, it went from there. It's a great website. It's uh, a little less complete than I'd like. It's the standard case of the shoemaker's children going untrod, but it's something we, we want to get more content onto it, but we've discovered that it's actually quite difficult to keep up with getting content everywhere. So there are lots of articles on the website that we'd like to turn into podcasts and there are a lot of podcasts we've done that we'd like to turn into articles and there are emails we've done that we'd like to turn into articles and there, you know, all kinds of stuff, but yeah. Uh, keeping it all straight is hard. What's, what's the, um, article that you most want people to read or the article they should start reading on your website? Uh, it's pretty difficult. There are a couple. Let me, let me go to the website and make sure I don't forget something important. I would say that probably androgyny is literally paganism would be a very important one to read. Can you give people so that, a teaser? Yeah, that basically articulates the core premise behind most of what we do, which is that the tendency or the impulse to merge or blur the genders or downplay their distinctions is at heart fundamentally religious and fundamentally anti-Christian. So it's a, um, a pagan religion at heart. That doesn't mean that everyone who does it is pagan, but it does mean that there's a serious issue with it being essentially a pagan doctrine that you're trying to tack on to Christianity if you're doing At best, it. you're a syncretist. Yeah, it is a kind of syncretism. Um, another important one is who does the dishes, <coughs> which is basically about why the question of who does the dishes is such a big issue for so many people in the church today. And we go back and look at what God made households to be and what they've become and how this is, this question is really just a symptom of the loss of what we call um, an existential household. So it's a, the household is a place where you find your meaning and identity we've lost that and the household has just became, become a kind of locus of consumption and that's caused this crisis and, and it's caused a lot of the complaints that feminism uh, initially had about, you know, women ought to have equality in the workforce and um, the problem without a name, how women staying at home is just, they, they feel dead inside and that kind of thing. So that's also quite an important one. Um, no father, no manhood would also be quite important because that articulates a very key principle in scripture, which is that in order to become a father, you first have to be a son. So in order to become a king, for instance, you first have to be a priest. You have to serve God before you can serve on his behalf um, by ruling, which is something that we see as foundational to kind of reforming the manosphere and red pill and so on 
uh, th that's kind of the key ingredient that's missing for a lot of people. And it ties in directly with regeneration and adoption into this, the, the family of God and so on through the gospel. Um, real quick, while we're on your blog, what is white knightism and why is it bad? White knightism is essentially, it's like a kind of arrested development that happens with a lot of men, most men, in fact, um, where they are conditioned into a feminine mindset and tend to defer to women as uh, a way of kind of validating themselves as men. So white knights will typically be the ones that jump on to defend a woman no matter what she's done, um, defend her against other men. You'll, they'll attack other men for her in order that she doesn't have to fight for herself. Um, they're usually the kind that will say women can do anything men can do. And then as soon as women actually have to do the thing that men would do, they jump in to help her. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, I just lost my train of thought there. So we'll go to books. You have books coming out. Books. Yeah. Uh, you have four <laughs> books coming out in 2021. Is that correct? Um, I, I don't actually know how many are coming out in 2021. I have six books slated. So the first one that I mentioned was the spine of scripture, which is out, but I want to revise it. There's just so much more that I, I need to add to it. And a, a few things I need to kind of finesse things that I've probably overstated, um, and need to kind of come back a bit on. The second is the ash in the air, which is a novel and that's like a hard sci-fi novel and it plays off a lot of the concepts in Genesis and, and redemptive history more generally, uh, but in quite an abstract way. So it's not, it's not like a kind of overtly Christian novel. It just uses um, a kind of, it, it symbolically takes a lot of Christian ideas and it revolves very heavily around time travel, like complex time travel um, concepts like the, the Chinese room, uh, artificial intelligence and theory of everything and how consciousness might fit into the theory of everything. So it's like a hard sci-fi. If, you, if you're not into, um, if you're not into hard sci-fi, if you're just kind of into fluffy sci-fi, I would give it a miss. What is fluffy sci-fi? What's an example? Uh, like Star Trek or, um, uh, even the expanse uh, expanse is kind of on the, on the edge, I'd say of hard sci-fi because it does try to use a lot of real world physics and that kind of thing. Um, but hard, hard sci-fi is basically taking uh, a very scientific approach and trying to say what would happen if these scientific principles held and you could do this um, as opposed to things like Star Trek are really just using uh, magic disguised as science in order to tell a fun story. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, that's your second book. That's number two. Uh, copywriting for Christians is number three. And you can get that on Amazon at the moment, but it's being republished through Canon Press and probably will come out this year. The manuscripts with them at the moment. It, it's basically a completely revised and expanded edition. So the first version that I wrote, because copywriting is most of what I do for my day job, and it's it revolves a lot around, basically it's salesmanship in print or salesmanship on the web. And obviously salesmanship has a lot of ethical issues that Christians are uncomfortable with or need to work through and find it difficult to figure out. So I wrote a book on that to kind of work through the theological issues and the ethical implications and to guide Christians on how, how to do copywriting or salesmanship in a way that 
isn't going to end up selling their soul. So I've reworked that to be a bit more comprehensive and accurate on the theological side since I've developed my thinking. And I've also added a second part, which goes into the, the actual practicalities of writing good copy that converts. Okay. That's, uh, that's number three. Number four is it's good to be a man. So that's the main project that I'm working on at the moment. That's coming out with Michael Foster and what it is, is it, we've had a lot of trouble narrowing down what we want to do with the book. It, it ended up, we started with a much broader idea than what we've ended up with. And we've really tried to be quite brutal in focusing down on the key issues. And what we're trying to do is create a very practical, but also very high level guide to how Christian men can go from being what we call clueless bastards, people who haven't been fathered well, to taking dominion as sons of God. So it's like how to uh, understand where we are as a culture, how to start developing personal discipline, how to develop masculine virtues. And it touches on a wide range of topics associated with masculinity, but it's really very much aimed at men who want to be better men as Christians. Okay. Um, and that's coming out this year or? Man, I hope so. Okay. Where is it in the writing process? We have the majority of the manuscript completed. Half the manuscript is already with Canon and the other half will be with them probably next month. Are they going to be your publishing house moving forward more or less? They will be publishing some things, but we have a, a fifth, uh, the fifth book that I've got lined up is also one that I'm writing with Michael called Notes on Manhood. And that one we probably won't publish through Canon partly because we want to get it out more quickly and partly because we don't like to be tied down to one place. So we're probably going to try self publishing that maybe look at a few options. We're not quite sure yet, but it's basically just a loosely reworked compilation of our best email newsletters. So if you think of the rational mail books, they're essentially just a whole bunch of blog posts or essays that are tied together along a common theme. And a lot of people really like that and find it helpful because it means that they can kind of, they can get into various, like a number of topics and a number of important topics in a way that is meaty enough to chew on, but doesn't require them to read an entire book on that one topic. So we want to put together a bunch of different essays into the, into the one book so that people can kind of have some good meat to chew on. Have you ever read uh, anything by Thomas Sowell? Uh, I confess that I have not very sadly. I've got a lot of his stuff on my reading list and I've uh, listened to quite a few things by Thomas Sowell. Have you, um, well, I, I only bring that up because he's got a few books where it, it's the chapters are different essays. And then, so then they're loosely tied together around a theme. Yeah. In fact, I think that's all I've read from him are different books that are like that. Is that basically going to be the feel of this book? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a very good way of doing a book because it means that you can repurpose content quite easily and in a way that a lot of people find useful and thought-provoking. That's number five. Number six? Number six is one that I'm working on with my wife and it's tentatively titled The 11th Commandment Survival Guide. Um, Michael is contributing a little bit to it. So he's on board of it. It's kind of affiliated with It's Good To Be A Man, but it's not really coming out through It's Good To Be A Man. I'm not sure how we're going to publish it yet. Um, the idea of it is essentially what to expect when you offend people in the church, 
with the truth of scripture and a lot of communication <laughs> yeah, well partly <laughs> that's certainly one thing that you should expect but yeah a lot of the motivation comes from the the absolute debacle that was my church discipline case at trinity reform baptist and just the unbelievable behavior of you know people that we thought were solid christians people that we thought were loyal friends and realizing that that kind of behavior and the the motivations behind it and um just how weak it all is 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 a rot that has spread through pretty much i don't want to say all churches obviously but um it's it's present in the majority of western churches today and you're going to be coming across it more and more and we want to prepare not just men for it obviously as the head of your household you need to be prepared for that if if you're taking a stand somewhere but also we're quite concerned to prepare women for it and prepare men for how their wives are going to react to it because what my wife experienced through that was a lot more intense than what I experienced, even though I was taking the brunt of it, she still emotionally felt it more than I did. And it's, I think quite important that both men and women understand that that's how it's going to be because of the differences between the sexes. Yeah. Okay. So earlier, and it was just a brief thing, you, you differentiated between preacher and pastor and in your differentiation, you very helpfully made that a very tangible thing. Okay. So if I ask you about, uh, you know, what does the, what does a well-ordered family look like? Can you briefly speak to that in a way that gets that kind of tangible tastefulness not tastefulness as it's tasteful, but you can taste it, you can smell it, see it, feel it. Speak to that. Well, the advantage of the advantage of comparing preacher and pastor was that I could tangibly compare them. Okay. I guess poorly the, ordered the family to, versus well ordered. Yeah, compare a, a poorly ordered versus well ordered, sure. Well, I could actually use the example of my own life. One of the the reasons that my wife has been so outraged at the at my excommunication was because I was being accused of all of these terrible things while at, especially on the basis of my work with it's good to be a man. So the, the key issue that, that my church landed on for excommunicating me was what I teach at it's good to be a man is divisive and false and scandalous and um, slanderous and so on. Now, when they're saying divisive, is that, uh, they're not meaning anything more by that then we don't like that and the majority of us don't believe that right so that, that makes me feel icky is that how they're using the word divisive yeah that's essentially what it meant how do you combat that how well i tried that kind of just emotional i tried to combat it by pointing out that in scripture divisiveness is actually caused by people who are teaching error yeah and that is it's not the person who is refuting error that's divisive even if he seems to be causing division, it's the people that were originally teaching the era that started that process. They're the divisive ones, but that didn't really work very well. So I, I don't have a better answer than that for you. I think you do have to stand on the truth, but you also can't expect that people who are emotionally invested in error are going to listen to the truth. I mean, you know, I don't think you can do better than Jesus and remember that Jesus was executed for speaking the truth. Yeah, but you're not Jesus. So, I mean, it would just be hard to try to emulate him well in, in, in those hard things, right? Just focus on loving like Jesus and the divisiveness wow. of Jesus, you know. 
everything that Jesus did was an exemplification of his love. Everything he did was out of love. So that would have to include things like calling the Pharisees broods of vipers and driving out the moneylenders from the temple with a whip. We hate, uh, our culture hates not only the reformers, but the prophets and, and the Lord, even in the church, based on our distaste for hard things. Yeah, one of the things that I came to realize very tangibly through the process was that we really have become the culture that builds the tombs of the prophets. We pay homage or homage, if you want, to the, the, our fathers in the faith, and to the prophets and the apostles and to Jesus. But if someone today acts like they did, we vilify them and drive them out of the church. Yeah. No Knox, no Luther, no Calvin, no John the Baptist. No. No room for that. But go back to a well-ordered family. Before I was involved with this whole masculinity thing, I guess a good way of describing my work with It's Good to Be a Man, and I think Michael would agree with this um, in his own life as well, is It's Good to Be a Man is first and foremost a project of repentance from effeminacy. Amen. It's essentially trying to lead other men by example. So this is something that we've actually been quite, um, quite concerned to emphasize from time to time because we found that a lot of men are looking for a hero. And that's very common for clueless bastards. They, they desperately need someone to look up to. And they, when they find someone that they think is that guy, they'll latch onto him. And he becomes like this kind of epic figure to them and can do no wrong. And Jocko Willink. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You see it all the time in the manosphere. Yeah. And we really don't want to be that to people because we know our own failings and our own flaws and where we are at as men and we're not those kinds of role models all all we have in advance of other men is that we're a bit further down the path because we've spent more time thinking about it and trying to practice it than they have so my my involvement with it's good to be a man made me realize how effeminate i had been on a lot of things and i'll give you a couple of examples so one of the things that I had sort of consistently refused to do, even though I knew it was a good thing to do, was to develop any kind of vision for my household, any kind of long-term plan, any system for getting us all on the same page and saying, this is what we stand for. This is where we're going. Um, these are the things that we're going to be doing. These are our goals for this year. These are our goals for the next five years. These are our goals for our life. Um, anything like that wasn't really on my radar. I was just kind of very much your standard couch potato kind of guy who lived for the day that he was in, didn't have any kind of vision for the future, didn't have any concern or ambition. And I think that God has used COVID-19 as a good way of um, shaking a lot of men out of that because they've realized that they were utterly unprepared for any of the things that happened, which is good. God uses calamities that way all the time. But I realized that that was one of the things I needed to be doing. Um, And just in terms of more practical things, my wife was for a long time, she was always very anxious because our house was in disrepair and our garden was a mess. And I just didn't really care. I was like, "Eh, it's just a garden, just a house. You know, if I have the money, I'll get someone to fix it someday. Didn't have a plan for ensuring that I saved the money to do that. 
uh, didn't have a plan for getting it done myself. It was always just putting it off for another day. And so things would gradually deteriorate. And it was very much the case of, you know, in Proverbs, it talks about, I, I walked past the house of a sluggard or the, the property of a sluggard and the wall was broken down and the weeds were there. And you, you could tell he was a sluggard because of the state of his property. So that's something that I've been working on, repenting of. Um, we've made slow progress in our garden at the moment. We've got a really good vegetable garden going now. And we're kind of working our way in a circle around the garden to get everything sorted so part of it's an absolute disaster still and part of it is looking really good so if i take a photo of one part of my garden i can say look this is what I, this is what a um, productive righteous wise man looks like and i can take a photo of the other part and say this is what a sluggard looks like by garden is, you mean yard right sure yeah okay. yard. i just wanted to make sure that i was on the same page and and our you know handful yeah, yeah. of american listeners are on the same page yeah the place with the lawn and and the flowers and the potatoes nice uh okay how do you know if you're in a church that is um hospitable to not hostile to masculinity can be pretty hard without directly asking because even churches that are hospitable towards masculinity tend to be quite i wouldn't say that they don't care so much as that they're oblivious they don't know these are issues which are still not on most people's radar so you won't find pretty much any church where it's normal for men to wear head coverings you would find the opposite you'd find that if you wore a head covering people would consider that pretty weird they wouldn't necessarily have a problem with it. Some places they would, they'd be like, Oh, this is terrible. Why are you doing this? And if you explain that you think first Corinthians 11 mandates that women do that, they would try to convince you otherwise, yeah. which to me is an absolutely bizarre attitude. Yeah. You know, if someone, if someone believes that scripture says they should do something and it's not doing any harm, why, why do you care? They're being faithful to God in their own way. Maybe they're wrong, but who cares? Well, I think what it is, is the text is really obvious. And when people yeah. start to practice it, it makes me feel bad. You're making, you're, you're, you're poking at what I've successfully done, which is basically just ignore and explain away and everyone else has done it with me. And so I don't feel aggravated by my own disobedience to scripture. And that's a, a lot of what you'll find. The reason that you get um, harassed and run out of churches is exactly that is people are content and complacent in their ability to ignore difficult things. And when you have one person who refuses to ignore it, that can't be tolerated because then it's constantly in your face and you have to deal with it somehow. And even the fear that you might be right is sufficient to make you have to go away. Yeah. But in terms of your question, I think one of the things to look at would be how the pastor, how dedicated is he both in the pulpit and out of the pulpit? Is he actively involved in the lives of his people um, in a way that is oriented toward discipling them? So he's, he's not just hanging out with them. He's actually looking for problems that they may have or sins that they may have. He's actively wanting them to grow in righteousness and he sees his job as helping them do that. Not in some kind of overbearing way, not in some way where he's um, you know, really kind of middling in their lives, but in a way that he's actually loving them. 
if you're in that kind of a church, then there's a good chance that people are going to be a lot more receptive to what scripture says on these issues because they are actively going to the scriptures in order to conform themselves to to them. Um, even if they have missed that one issue, they they somehow they've got a blind spot there, which is primarily primarily just because of cultural conditioning. If they have that blind spot and you point it out to them, they're more likely to be willing to consider the possibility that there really is a blind spot and that there really is some way that they need to change because they're accustomed to the idea of doing that. So that's that's probably um, a major way that I would be looking for it apart from just going up to the pastor and saying, what is your view on women in government, for instance? Yeah. Well, to that, um, and I want to go back to the family, but just quickly. So we've got a governor. You've got a heck of a prime minister. You call them prime ministers? Yeah, we call them prime ministers. Yeah. Fantastic prime minister over there. But uh, we've got a governor in America who, I hate to say it, is probably the best governor in America, and she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I blank it on her first name, but Nome, N-O-A-M, governor of South Dakota, mm-hmm. has been head and shoulders far superior on liberty and responsibility um, in the face of COVID and basically the excuse the government has used that as to try to re rewire Western society. And so, you know, it puts you in a spot of, uh, or it raises up a question of, you know, when would you be willing to vote for, put your support behind a female government official? Uh, Because, you know, I, I know that you are, in, on friendly terms with that first trumpet blast against the monstrous regiment. Um, and yet sometimes you find yourself in a world where your Republicans have very soft hands and limp wrists and women are exhibiting without being butch, which I don't think she does in an overt way. She's obviously necessarily in a masculine position, which on one hand, is an abomination and yet on the other hand she's doing very righteous things in that role speak to that conundrum that we find ourselves commonly in in the west today it's interesting that you ask that because just today i was looking through some old tweets that i had uh, i'm trying to kind of create an archive of random notes and thoughts and so on and i came across john knox's comment in the first blast of the trumpet where he says for if a woman reigneth above man she hath obtained it by treason and conspiracy committed against god how can it be then that she being criminal and guilty of treason against god committed can appoint any officer pleasing in his sight it is a thing impossible wherefore let men that receive of women authority honor or office be most assuredly persuaded that in so maintaining that usurp power they declare themselves enemies to god so Knox is very strong on this point, and I think that he probably regretted being quite so strong because when he wrote that, he was directing it against Mary, Queen of Scots, I believe yeah. it was Mary, Queen of Scots. And then she died just before it was published, as I recall. Yeah. And a Protestant queen, was it Elizabeth? I forget. Elizabeth. 
Yeah, she came to power and was none too pleased. <laughs> and he spent a great deal of the rest of his life doing damage control. So Knox is a good example to us of the importance of sensitivity to politics. Um, not, not compromising because of po politics, but being understanding the difference between a visionary dreamer. I think Knox was too much of a visionary dreamer on this one point and not enough of a principal pragmatist. You have to have principle and pragmatism. You have to marry them. You have to find a balance between them in order to be a true reformer. And I wouldn't say Knox was not a true reformer. He was obviously one of the great reformers, but yeah. I think on this one issue, um, Kelvin advised him, no, don't do this. And I think Kelvin was probably right. Uh, Knox definitely should have attenuated the way that he did it at least. Well, the timing, uh, timing is a... Uh, yeah, the timing was very unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, Knox he's must be like, why? <laughs> Knox puts that in the post. He's like, son of a gun. Uh. Yeah. But I think his fundamental principle is correct in that when you have a woman who comes to power in that way, and um, essentially it is treason against God because it is a man's role. And so anyone who takes power uh, from her, uh, like, you know, governors and so on that she appoints are also in that sense, kind of by transitive relationship, they are also treasonous against God. But, you also have to look to the example. I think Deborah obviously is the one that people are going to go to. So That's you why look to the, I have female pastors, Deborah. Right. Yeah. So you look to Deborah in the Old Testament, and she did not count rulership as a thing to be grasped. She actively tried to give Barak the rulership, in fact, but she counted herself a mother to Israel, and. It, it would depend obviously on a number of factors, but that's one of the questions I would be asking is, does this woman see herself just as a man essentially, or does she see herself in this role as a mother to her nation? And I wouldn't expect a modern governor to necessarily have that worked out in a kind of uh, very clear articulated way, because that kind of distinction just doesn't exist in the modern mind. But I would want to know something about her character. And, and if she is actually in, if she's doing a really good job in that role, I would su suspect that it's because she has got quite a motherly kind of nature. Um, that doesn't mean that she should be in it, but it does, it does change the calculus of whether you're going to vote for her, especially when you have to consider it against what are the alternatives. So I would vote for a woman who was against abortion and looked like she was seriously going to make changes that would result in significantly fewer babies dying over a man who was openly campaigning for liberalizing abortion laws. I think that's a no-brainer because you have to consider the, the hierarchy of, um, of wrongs, essentially. Yeah. What's, what's going to be worse? So that's something which a lot of people struggle with, and it's obviously one of the big reasons that a lot of people didn't vote for Trump initially. Yeah, they just didn't believe that he was, was going to be a good, uh, a good governor or good president based on his known character and his known past and so on. And they thought not necessarily they were going to vote Democrat, but they weren't going to vote for Trump either. And I can certainly respect that decision. I think that's a valid decision to make. But if you have someone who has a track record of doing good and she's a woman and it's obviously not good to have a woman in power, but she's going to be a lot better than a man. Yeah. It's one of the ways that God judges a nation. Yeah. And you can't second guess God. 
you have to try to work with God, what God has given you and yep. be as faithful as you can in that situation. And, and you see in the history of Israel in the book of Judges, in fact, Deborah is raised up specifically as a judgment because of the fact that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the men of Israel had yeah. failed as rulers. And even, even David ex, uh, explicitly is choosing a judgment. He's not, he's not choosing between judgment or no judgment. He's choosing mm-hmm. which judgment. Yeah. That, that ultimately is why I voted for Trump in 2016 without a lot of confidence in him. But I was choosing which judgment I preferred, Clinton or Trump. Yeah. Would you would you say that principle of pragmatism should also inform how we go after abortion? So you have basically the abolitionist movement. As a Virginian, I've got a lot of baggage with the abolitionists of the past, but you have the abolitionist movement today, and then you have incrementalists of a number of stripes, right? So if we talk about the best incrementalists, so as not to straw man, mm-hmm. would you say principle of pragmatism? should lead us to an incrementalist approach, basically game it as best you can with what you've got. Well, I think principle pragmatism, I'm not a historian, so I'm not very well read on this issue, but from what I understand, principle pragmatism did lead to an incrementalist approach to the elimination of slavery in Europe. Slavery was basically gone in Europe by the 18th century because of an incremental approach to getting rid of it. Uh, It was, only in the United States that things went so poorly. And it was because of the abolitionist movement, at least quite significantly because of the abolitionist movement, as I understand it, that that worked out so badly and it led to a civil war. Yeah. Um, you know, that wasn't the only issue there, but abolitionism, I do think was the wrong approach. It was basically a visionary dreamer approach where, and I'm going to do anything I can to get there right now, rather than work through the means that God has actually given me. Yep. No, that's that that's helpful um and i say that as someone who has no love of the pro-life movement in general because the pro-life movement has an inherent contradiction in it which is much like you're in, it's like incentivizing the police to catch people who are speeding you're incentivizing people to punish crimes is a really terrible way of ensuring that justice is done because they have an obvious a strong motivation to find injustice even if there isn't any it's the same with the pro-life movement. It's such a developed industry that there's this strong motivation to continue it, to perpetuate it, because yep. that's how they get their money. There's and a so lot of money. If you're actually too life. successful in a, yeah. So being successful as a pro-lifer actually means continuing the pro-life cause rather than getting rid of abortion. Yeah, and uh, there's a there's an abolitionist in America named Rusty Thomas, and he has been involved along with um, some others in promoting abolitionist legislation in different states that has been opposed seemingly you know, transparently by pro-lifers because of the hit to their budget that it would, it would cause. Mm-hmm. It, it not Which is terrible. They couldn't, yeah. Uh, yeah, Ichabod upon them. Indeed. So I yeah, have- and, uh, and that's the same mentality facing in a lot of other areas i mean that's essentially the same mentality that leads to people like me being excommunicated from churches yeah we have this system that we don't want to interrupt yeah and you're interrupting the system so get out you're destabilizing and that's a threat to my power um so i want to i'm driving toward and i want to respect your time i'm driving towards having you prophesy at the end 
Um, but oh, before I get to you talks. prophesying, uh, okay. uh, this tees it up. So I have like-minded friends in Scotland and not immediately recently, but um, relatively recently spanking was outlawed. So smacking is probably what you, the word you use. Smacking was outlawed. It's yeah, criminal. You know, it's a threat to, you know, have your children removed if you're caught. And obviously they shouldn't have their kids in government schools, but institutions like that are being used to spy on families at the threat of um, institutionalizing their children and, and making them products of the state instead of, uh, of Christian homes. You see it more severely in continental Europe where families, um, where it's, it's because government school is so helpful in uh, as a tool to spy on the inner workings of Christian homes, you know, it's a legal requirement to send your kids to a government school and you're actually going to be forbidden from leaving the country. Uh, you know, one family, I think from Scandinavia was barred from leaving to the UAE of all places where they were going to homeschool their children. Um, you know, one, one family in Germany had their kids taken because of homeschooling. So you see these attacks on the family. Is it, illegal in New Zealand to smack or in you know American parlance spank your kids it's unclear because the government in New Zealand is New Zealand is a bit of a strange place maybe it's actually quite similar in other nations but in New Zealand a lot of the sentiment of the common people is way out of step with the elite, we know what's best for you attitude that okay. seems to be so prevalent everywhere. So the government in New Zealand often does what it wants, regardless of what the people think. Okay. And the people are fairly passive and don't seem to think that there's anything they can do about this. And so New Zealand is essentially an oligarchy. We, that um, creates a lot of dissonance in my mind because I, I have this view of New Zealand that and this is a very basic view, uh, but it is what it is, and I enjoy it. I see New Zealand as the haka. Okay, uh, yep. The a haka uh, from Polyne from Maoris and white dudes, with the backdrop of the Lord of the Rings mountains and all the glory that comes with it, and then just uh, baffling complacency and compliance. Just this odd softness where the government wants your guns. So they're going to march into your house and take your guns, confiscate your guns. You know, if I'm remembering correctly, there was a gun buyback or gun confiscation thing. And it just happened where in America, at least you'd hope like, Oh man, there's going to be some fights going on. So I, how in the world do you have a place so compliant, but the haka seems to be in the blood, at least in my mind, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in the blood of the people. You guys are, this Southern Pacific warrior island, you know, punching above your weight with the shadow of Australia looming to your north. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's quite like that, unfortunately. New Zealand has a strangely divided national heritage. Um, the the Maori were treated better here than a lot of Native peoples were around the world, but that isn't to say that they were treated well. And, and we have a lot of the same kinds of problems with um, the kind of 
not a separation of the races, but the, the, the native peoples are somewhat more, they tend to be lower class. Um, they tend to suffer more in, in various ways socially um, for kinds of reasons. And they've, I would say, lost their cultural identity. The, the, the haka is something that New Zealanders are very proud of because it comes from our history, but it's not really, it doesn't reflect the, the natural uh, culture of either the English speakers or the more Maori side of things. And there are very few people now who speak Maori at all. Um, we are strangely compliant though, and, and inclined to just go along. We, we have what's called the she'll be right attitude, where no matter what happens, you just say, oh, she'll be right. And don't worry about it. So that's kind of how we've managed to get where we are, I think. Uh, and I assume that other cultures have a similar kind of attitude. It's just the, the way people are. They don't want to cause a fuss or uh, they don't want to get in trouble, basically. And they assume that if they rock, rock the boat, then they'll get kicked out rather than other people being like, hey, I could rock the boat too and stand up for this guy. The William Wallace effect. Yeah, One exactly. boat rocker dr draws a whole nation of boat rockers. I think that the time will come when that happens, but it's obviously not yet. So two New Zealand compliant people, no Hakka mountains in the distance, well, no Lord of the Rings. The thing about New Zealand is the government decided that spanking should be illegal okay. and effectively criminalized it. And the rest of the population was basically like, well, we don't really care what you think. We're going to keep spanking our kids. Okay. And Good. so the government was like, well, I guess, you know, we could sort of allow it. And so we won't really prosecute you unless you're abusing your kids, but we could. So uh -huh. now no one actually knows if they're allowed to spank their kids or not. And it's a constant source of anxiety where you don't know for sure if your neighbors are going to try to dob you in if they hear you having to give your son the belt for whatever reason. And he happens to be the kind of son that cries very loudly because that's just how kids are, isn't it? Is snitching... Uh in America, snitching has become quite the pastime. Is that a thing in New Zealand? I haven't heard of it being a thing. And the neighborhood that I live in seems to be pretty conservative, all things considered. So I guess it definitely would depend where you live. Uh, there would be places where I would be much less inclined to try to physically discipline my children. But where I am, it doesn't seem to be a major problem, but it is always in the back of your mind. If I you know, if I smack my kid in public, is someone going to notice and try to report me? Or, And if they do, what will the police do? Are the police going to be like, that's stupid, stop reporting people for stupid things? Or are they going to be, you know, you, you never know who you're going to get. Is it going to exactly. be someone who's really against smacking and thinks any kind of smacking is abuse and has an axe to grind and is going to send you all the way down the river? Or is it someone who's got a, a head on his shoulders and just says, whatever, get over it? So that kind of issue um, is just a, one ingredient of many that uh, the West is dealing with. So here's, you know, the, the prophecy part is, uh, in, you know, where is the West? Where are we at in our cultural trajectory, Western civilization, seeing our, our so I would say America's, uh, well, it ought to be 50 nations, but reconstructed America is one nation. We have New Zealand, Australia, British, British Isles, Western Civ. Uh, where are we? 
and where will we be? You know, uh, I asked Michael Bull this, but you know, 10 years from now, wh wh what are we saying about 2021? Where are we going and, and what should we do about it? Where we are, let's try to take stock. We murder our children in the privacy of the womb. We steal from our neighbors in order to give the money to other neighbors. Um, those are two of the major ones. It's Christians send their children to, well, I, I liken it to an Englishman during World War II sending his kids to Hitler Youth to be educated and then are shocked and surprised and outraged if anyone suggests such an analogy because that's pharisaicalism. And then are also shocked and surprised and outraged when their kids come back as Nazis. Um, we're in a pretty bad place. We are at the tail end of a trajectory and it's, it's not a good trajectory. And Michael, in your previous podcast, he talked about the way that God establishes this pattern in Genesis. Adam is given a commission and he's tested and he fails and then it's stripped from him and his sons take it over. And you see that pattern play out with Israel as well. But you also see the pattern um, play out the, the right way with people like Abraham, who is given this commission to go and sacrifice your son. And he reasons that he could receive Isaac back from the dead. And he goes and he is willing to do it. He's about to put the knife to his son's throat. And Isaac himself would have been at least 20 by that age. So he was certainly acting in faith too, allowing his father to do that. And God then essentially does give him back from the dead. He says, stop. And he provides a substitute. You see it play out obviously with Jesus who goes to the cross um, and is then raised back to life and enthroned in the heavenly places and above all power and rule and dominion and authority. Uh, you see it with Daniel who is willing to go into the lion's den and is delivered out of it. So usually the trajectory when you're faithful, it involves some kind of death and a, a reviving from some kind of death, a resurrection of some kind. And when you're unfaithful, it just involves dying. So if you try to, instead of acting in faith and letting God take care of it and just doing as you're told and believing that he will make it better in the long run, if you try to take it under your own steam and fix the problem yourself, then it tends to just end in destruction. But even in that case, you know, Adam, that happened to Adam, but Adam's sons continued the commission of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And when Seth was born, that's when people began to call on the name of Yahweh. Um, when Israel failed in that task, ultimately it was destroyed in 70 AD, but the commission didn't fail. It was taken up by the church. God had a greater plan. And so I think that what Michael said about the way that America is what the world was supposed to be, I get what he's saying there. The idea of Christendom has developed gradually through church history and it's been tried in a number of ways and it's failed each time, but it comes back better each time as well. So when the model fails, it's always a precursor to something greater. And we know that the final outcome for the world is Revelation eleven fifteen: the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his anointed. So even though Christendom has failed many times, it gradually rises from the ashes. God is sanctifying the world in the same way that he sanctifies people, which is through discipline, Hebrews 11, uh, 12, 11. So in the short term, I think if I understand God's patterns correctly, 
I think what Michael was saying is basically that the West is going to turn to rubble probably within our lifetime. And I think he's probably right. And I suspect that it's going to happen quite quickly when it happens. It's like sawing off a branch from a tree. It takes ages to saw and you're sawing away. You think nothing's happening and everything's continuing just as it was. And then you hit that critical point and just snaps. That seems to be the way that these things typically go. The, the deterioration takes a long time and it's kind of unnoticed. Everyone thinks that society is just going to keep on going. And then suddenly when the end comes, it comes really fast and a lot of people don't see it coming until it's too late. So in the short term, what we need to be doing is just preparing. And we saw with COVID-19 how unprepared most people were. You know, the toilet paper stocks were depleted. Okay, so maybe you should be thinking about the kinds of things that you're going to need in order to protect your family. But you also, you need to get out of the kind of, what you might call the simplistic or the gross prepper mindset where it's really just you against the world because if it's you against the world you're doomed there's no chance that you can stand against the world what you need to be doing is focusing on building strong local communities joining with other people who believe what you believe and building something that will survive if possible, the worst kind of societal collapse. So assume it's going to go as badly as it could possibly go. That way you'll be prepared for anything. You know, if you want peace, prepare for war. Hopefully it won't be that bad. Hopefully it'll be much less severe, but I think we need to prepare for the worst in order to be able to get through anything. And we need to be doing that by building those communities. And we also need to be doing it. Uh, the most important thing I would say is to be raising up our children to be warriors, to, to teach them the church is an army, that we have this commission um, of rebuilding. When things go south and everything collapses, we're going to rebuild and we're going to do it by making disciples of the nations, of our nation, and baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that the Lord Jesus commands. And maybe they won't get there. Maybe things will be so bad that in their generation, the best that they can do is teach their children to do that. But then at some point, God is going to be faithful and he is going to send his spirit and someone's children, whether it's my children or my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren, are going to have to take up the task of doing that work. So we absolutely have to be thinking multi-generationally. We have to be thinking, what does my house stand for now? What's it going to stand for at the end of my life? How are my children going to continue that work? How are they going to carry it on? What's it going to mean to bear my name into the future? And how is my house going to bear God's name into the future? Well, that's the kind of note that I should end on. But I have a loyal <laughs> listener who has a question for you. So one last question. I promise this is it. All right. um, he is uh, in the military. He has lots of ladies over him and they're not doing their jobs in the way you described you know the best possible scenario yeah. where a woman's out of place but doing her job right what's a word of wisdom you have for this brother who's really struggling in that kind of treasonous context well coming from new zealand this is going to sound a bit blasphemous but i'd be asking myself do i need to be in the military is the military actually a good thing? I've found that Americans have an almost religious view of the military. It's like a sacred calling. Yeah. And 
I don't want to diss my American friends, but I think you need to take a close look at Deuteronomy 17 and ask yourself, what is the principle behind the idea that the king must not amass horses? What is the, the reasoning that God doesn't want a king to amass military might? And I'm not saying that America should abandon having an army because I don't think that's, that's a visionary dreamer. You have to be a principal pragmatist. America obviously needs to have a standing army right now because yeah. of the rest of the world. Yeah. But there is going to come a point in the future when everyone does bash their saws into plowshares or their you know, M16s or whatever it happens to be. And you need to be thinking through, it's not wrong to serve in the military. And this is an issue that the first century Christians had you know, when a soldier was converted, he, he had to deal with the question, am I going to continue serving as a soldier, which is essentially to be um, a soldier in Caesar's kingdom. And can I do that while also being a soldier in God's kingdom? I think it's getting to the point where that's a serious question that Christians today have to be thinking through as well. It's, it's very analogous in a way that it wasn't even 50 years ago. Yep. And you have to be asking yourself, what am I doing in this military? What, what is the end that I'm serving? What government am I actually upholding here? Joe is Biden it, government, baby. Yeah. Is it one that I should be upholding? Or yeah. should I be maybe putting these skills to use forming a militia of the kind that our founding fathers had in mind that maybe we'll have to fight against the government's military at some point because we're living in a tyranny? Listen, your government and my government, they're both listening to this, uh, this conversation right now. So that was not just said. You know what I'm I saying? know that I am already doomed if the, I'll be the first against the war when the revolution comes. Uh, you know, I, I hope you know that I, I greatly appreciate your time. You are a huge encouragement to me. Your work is directly helpful to me in the work I'm trying to do. Um, you know, and I know we've never talked before. Uh, and I hope that's a, just a broad encouragement to you that you're going to be doing things and not know who it's benefiting, how it's benefiting, not know the kind of communities that are built because of you and others like you doing the work you're doing. Uh, the Lord is blessing many with it. Uh, I do not deserve the blessing I've, I've gotten even from you uh, and, and from others like you. So thank you for your time. I, you're very welcome. I'm always grateful to meet men like you. It's constant surprise to me the, the, the reach that Michael and I have been given just through the work that we're doing. It, it baffles us sometimes. I mean, Michael just talked at the Stronghold Conference with Vody Bockham. Yeah. He said, you know, everyone there knew the ins and outs of his life and listened to all our podcasts. And it was just bizarre. <laughs> it is it's really bizarre. But we want to we're really not in this for ourselves. One of our key concerns is this cult of personality that you see in evangelicalism. Yeah. And we're really concerned about being able to equip men to do the work of men without having to be Michael Foster or non-tenant, because if, if you have to be asked to do it, you're never going to be able to do it. Um, so yeah, we're really grateful that men like you are being encouraged and helped by what we're doing. Yeah. So thank you persevere uh and you know hopefully we'll talk to you many more times but don't ever see you in the flesh i'll see you in the throne room that's for sure that's right looking yeah. forward to it yeah um and yeah until next time go with god you too brother
Fall.